Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and pal, uh, the Pillar's co-founder and editor, Ed Condon. Ed, hello. Hi, J.D. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, too. I don't think I've ever heard anyone use the word pal unironically who was (laughs) born after 1950, so thank you for that. Hiya, pal. Yeah, hello. How are you? Well, now, if you're going to say hiya, pal, and it's, now I'm getting Home Alone flashbacks, and it sounds very faintly sinister. <laughs> I don't, I, I, I don't know that much about Home Alone. I think I've probably seen it one time. That's that's impossible. That Home Alone is easily one of the top five films of the '90s, all in, and Joe Pesci's performance in that is, I mean, career defining. Surely. Sure. Maybe I've seen it twice, but, uh, you know, I, I grew up Home in Alone, the- it, there was, there was a, I forget what it was on. It was probably on Netflix or something. I don't know. But I, I watched once a documentary on the making of Home Alone. Mm-hmm. I mean, full disclosure, I, I spent a, a period of my youth living in the town in which Home Alone was filmed. So I, I have an, an instinctive and emotional attachment to a number of films of that genre from that director that were all made in that town in that era. The, the Dennis the Menace the, you John know, Cusack was it John Cusack what no was, John Cusack he's from a, Chicago right he is from Chicago actually um, he is but no he didn't direct, it, I'm not going down this road with you I know when you're needling me and I'm not giving in anyway the point is um, it, it, it's a it, Home Alone is a really interesting film in yeah that, I mean I think High Fidelity is sort of his best work but uh, Home Alone is good I'm not. I'm not biting. I'm not going to do it. You can't make me. I. Okay. I'm not gonna. The, the. I was going to make a really interesting twenty second point, and you've spun this okay, out. Okay, go now. ahead. Uh, <laughs> no, but the interesting thing about Home Alone is, um, when they were making it, they thought this this is going to be a disaster because the film is insanely violent. I mean, it's yeah. it's cartoonish levels of violence, and the people that are subjected to them to the violence sort of you know get up and bounce back like cartoon characters, but. There, there was legitimate concern while they were making the film that like this is going to be unusable because it's just so unbelievably violent. We can't possibly pitch this as a film for families or kids. You know, this is awful. Yeah. But what humanizes the film and makes it so brilliant is the soundtrack. That it's oh. a ju- because of the score, which is you know John Williams. Um, it, it, it anchors the whole film and makes it at once sentimental and romantic and seasonal and approachable but also um brings a lightheartedness to what would otherwise be like you know just like cringe cringing violence it, it's really interesting that way cinema um in terms of cinematography i found that I, I i hadn't considered like how do you get away with presenting this as a as a holiday film a family holiday film mm-hmm. for kids mm-hmm. um but it's true that the music the score of the film changes entirely your perception of it which is really interesting to me also it's a fantastic film so um why are we talking about home alone again i don't know what's funny oh, and you is, said hiya pal which is what joe pesci says at one point and yeah okay well it was a big mistake for you to talk about home alone and i'll tell you why i was gonna give you the top of the show to talk about baseball because i know <laughs> i think you have some thoughts about baseball that you've been wanting to talk about and this morning we're recording this podcast on friday and you sent out your newsletter this morning and there were some th- things that you wanted to put in baseball at the top of the newsletter and i suggested that you cut them because they 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 just i didn't think they worked as an open and you you did i thought you might move them to the bottom but you totally cut them so i was going to give you the beginning of the podcast to talk about them but you decided to use that time for home alone instead so that's kind of uh, you know i guess that was that was your choice uh, it wasn't a conscious choice but i'll be honest with you it's probably the better choice I, my my thoughts on home alone are probably more coherent than my thoughts on what the Cubs did on trade deadline day. Well, we can't talk about um, that. Yeah. Um, but maybe we can talk about it at the end if we get, if we get through some things and it's the summer, Ed, it is the summer. And, um, in the church, that means that the just news slows down. So this is a podcast in which we talk about the news. And the fact of the matter is in the summer, uh, the news slows down, you know, considerably. And, um, and so, you may well be able to talk about it because we may sort of get get to that point. But what happens effectively is that um, for much of uh, – effectively for much of the month of August, various offices of the Roman Curia close. Um, people uh, people take, you know, either two weeks off. It, it used to be that sort of everyone took off the whole of August, but now it's sort of come, changed a little bit. So people might take the two weeks off the beginning of, the August, of August or the middle two weeks or the last two weeks. But the consequence of that is that just the – the engine of a lot of ecclesiastical news, which is to say the Holy See, just slows itself down uh, dramatically. 
And so uh, there's not, you know, quite as much news that comes out of Rome as is uh, as is often the case. But that's kind of good because it gives us the chance, I think, to sort of deep dive into some things that are interesting and that we might not otherwise spend as much time talking about. I, I agree. I mean, there there needs to be a certain seasonal rhythm to life, and there definitely should be a seasonal rhythm to working life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, I, I, there there are whole countries, whole regions of the world that have traditionally shut down uh, in terms of the per- professions for the whole of August because people need a break. And right. you know, I'm I'm in favor of this. I <laughs> I like to think I have as unhealthy an approach to work as anyone. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, while it might be good and, um, pleasant even to, to go all in on working life when, you know, when it is the season to do so, I I think that's made, that's either offset or made healthy or made possible even if you're willing to take advantage of the natural lulls at the same time. I'm, you know, we, we batted around the idea of maybe we needed to, you know, have a have a have a pillar summer a week recess. Off. We might kind of take us a little yeah. summer recess for the pillar. And if we do, I think August is probably the time in which we might take a take a week off. I think there's probably some advantage to that, and it may well be the thing that we be the thing that we do. I don't know. We'll but, see. Um, but before we do that, um, I do want to talk a little bit about the life of the church because um, I, I wrote about this I think the other day, and it's. Um, it's interesting to me that the church is just a couple of months away from like a very big event that will be, or a very big series of events, a process that will be, um, that will essentially be a two year long process of consultations and listening sessions and discernments at kind of every level of the church is at least the way that this is envisioned, which is kind of the lead up to, or I suppose really a sort of part of the synodal process leading up to. Uh, a synod of bishops, a meeting of bishops in 2023 um, in Rome, as the bishops do have a, have a synod in October every couple of years in Rome on different topics. Um, that this the topic of this upcoming synod in 2023 will be on the notion of sort of synodality itself, and we can talk about what that means. But the Pope has this vision for this synod on synodality that would sort of precede a meeting of bishops with meetings of Catholics, kind of at every sort of structural level of the church, beginning with dioceses, so that there would be. Um, diocesan sort of meetings and listening sessions to talk about this notion of synodality and meetings among religious orders, meetings at Catholic colleges and universities, meetings among ecclesial movements, then meetings among bishops in various countries, meetings at the continental level, meetings of Episcopal conferences and places where that doesn't exactly align with countries um, or continents for that matter, I guess, um, and a, a variety of other sort of consultations and discussions on this notion of synodality. Um, and it's a sort of it's a sort of interesting thing because Usually when the bishops have a a synod, which again is effectively a meeting to discuss a particular topic, what happens is they do a little consultation, you know, in their home dioceses in various parts of the world. And then they, um, and then a few people are sort of appointed to be representatives of different groups. And then principally bishops get together in Rome and talk for a couple of weeks about essentially what they think the church ought to be doing on some topic. And uh, then they kind of draft by committee a document making suggestions about what the church ought to be doing on evangelization or young people or the family or the Amazon region or whatever it is. And then they sort of draft um, a document by committee and then vote on whether they're going to approve that document. And then the Pope takes the document and reads it and prays about it, presumably, and then writes his own document. That's kind of the ordinary synodal process. And this um, sort of two-year process of consultations and meetings at every level is a very different way of of undergoing or preparing for that meeting of bishops. And and the reason I bring it up is because it's supposed to start in October. So we're just now like two months away from when it's supposed to start. Synod without end, without end, amen, alleluia. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, goody. you're saying goody in a way that I have heard a lot of people say goody, which is to say, you know, that there is a, a lot of, um, I have noticed among ecclesiastics of various kinds, the, a, a fair amount of sort of skepticism or uncertainty about this. But I am... Uh, I, not not skepticism or uncertainty, JD. My stomach turns over at the thought. Oh, okay. That's a bit strong for our show. It is. Well, I mean, not out of revulsion, but out of concern, out of worry. I mean, look, I understand the theory here, or at least I think I do. I mean, does anyone really understand that? I mean, isn't that the point of having a, a sort of Russian doll 
synod on synodality is no one actually really understands the theory. There isn't a consensus on the theory, which is why they're doing it in the first place. But I mean, it's become like it or loathe it and whatever anyone's intentions in their participation at the last several synods, meetings of the Synod of Bishops in Rome have been incredibly contentious. Yeah, they have. Incredibly so. And they have, you know, the, the, if any, if people are agreed upon anything about the concept of synodality and having a synodal church and the functioning of synods as a, as an ordinary working part of the church's life, it's that it's supposed to represent people coming together people discussing things and the Holy Spirit emerging through the discussion sort of by happy, prayerful, honest consensus. But uh, I, I don't think I'm being senselessly cynical to say that that has not been the atmosphere which has characterized the last several meetings of the Synod of Bishops. Well, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, so the, la- the last few Synods of Bishops, so we had in 2000, I want to say 15, the Synod on the Family, which was incredibly contentious because there was a, a lot of discussion, as church watchers will remember, there was a lot of discussion about the question of reception of Holy Communion by divorced and remarried Catholics, and there was a lot of sort of back and forth about that and, and other issues too. And then, um, and then subsequent to that, there was the Synod on Youth, where there was there was sort of still the sort of afterglow of the Synod on the Family and therefore a fair amount of contention about a couple of issues. And then there was the Synod on the Amazon, which was sort of famously controversial because there was a question about these proposals for the possibility of um, uh, married priest, which was an incredibly contentious thing among not just the Synod Fathers, but the media and commentators and peanut galleries and, 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 and the possibility of a sort of institute of of a, of a female diaconate and sort of unordained female diaconate, whatever that might be. And the Pope wanted to have a, a the Pope had had the sense that he wanted to have a very open and free conversation about that, which meant that you heard bishops in Rome sort of from a, a official sort of positions saying things that you wouldn't expect bishops to say in, in, in sort of official circles, which is, you know, that we have to reconsider Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, in which the church says that she doesn't believe that she has the power to ordain women as priests. And you sort of had bishops sort of challenging that and saying the church needs to rethink that. And a really sort of, um, not only a spirit of contention, but a spirit, a, a sense in, in each of those synods that effectively what the synod was, was sort of a legislative body by which bishops would make speeches and politic and these kinds of things and um and then sort of vote on whether to approve a set of proposals or not and that's not what a synod is i mean they've been not only contentious but political and i think as a consequence of that there is an incredible amount of cynicism the cynicism that you expressed or skepticism the skepticism that you expressed about kind of this upcoming synod on synodality to be clear it's not cynicism or skepticism i'm expressing it's outright anxiety i i understand that notion of anxiety but i want to offer kind of i i want to i am not especially cynical or skeptical about the synod on synodality and 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 that seems to me to be a minority position among many, many people that I hear from. I, I hear from a lot of people who are cynical about it or sort of skeptical about it from the beginning, but I'm not, and I'll tell you why. Um, I do think that it will probably be this idea that there will be consultations in every diocese around the world starting in like two months, and then there will be all these levels of consultation subsequent to that. I do think it will probably be organizationally chaotic. And I do think that there will be the introduction of various kinds of political narratives into it at, at various times that are problematic, both sort of in the sense of sort of distracting from the notion of synodality, which I'll talk about in a minute, and also because they're suggesting proposals that are that are themselves problematic. I, I have no doubt about any of that, and I'm not naive about any of that. At the same time, I think th- this may well be sort of the Pope's effort to... Um, to take the synod out of sort of the, this process that he thinks is important of synodality, or this concept that he thinks is important out of uh, called synodality, sort of out of um, the hands of bishops who have sort of, to some degree, politicked it, and and the media who have dramatically politicked it and treated it, both secular and Catholic media, I would say, treated it like a sort of legislative session with parties and you know motions and and, and these kinds of things, and to sort of see what happens if it's undertaken more organically. And I think the concept of synodality is an important concept in the, in the ordinary life of Christians, right? So the, the concept of synodality is a notion, and a lot of people say, well, synodality is undefined, synodality is undefined. I'm, I'm not so sure it is. It seems to me that the notion of synodality is 
a, a, something modeled in the New Testament and modeled in the life of the early church, something which is often historically um, impacted, compromised, changed, or challenged by politics, I mean, from the very early days of the church. But at the same time, the notion of coming together as Christians to pray and um, to discuss and, uh, and and to sort of seek the will of God prayerfully together is an important notion. And it strikes me as an important notion which depends on um, a faith in the Holy Spirit that I think the church is often lacking. And here's what I mean. I think that we have in the 21st century, parts of the 20th century, an extremely sort of anemic pneumatology in the life of the church on the whole. Uh, pneumatology is the theology of the Holy Spirit. And, and we tend to sort of reduce the Holy Spirit either to um, sort of a mathematical principle, a set of theorems, the Holy Spirit protects the church in these ways, in these ways, in these ways, or um, the Holy Spirit is reduced to kind of like your invisible friend, you know, Casper the Friendly Ghost, who's kind of fuzzy and felt bannerish. The Holy Spirit is reduced in that way. But we don't have an expectation in the ordinary life of the church of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are reflected amply in the New Testament, of wisdom and counsel and prophecy and um, being able to both hear and receive and interpret prophetic words and uh, and being able to sort of seek the Holy Spirit in a way that that guides our life, that that changes our sort of discernment from something which is um, principally rational or principally deistic even to something in which we are invoking and recognizing and engaging with the living God in the context of the church. I, I think our pneumatology is often incredibly anemic. And I don't think that one sort of gets over that without efforts to invite the Holy Spirit into the conversations of the church. And I, I recognize all of the ways in which sort of the upcoming synodal process will be, yeah, messy, expensive, chaotic, that people have bad ideas, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I, one thing that strikes me a lot is the number of practicing Catholics who, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but the number of, of practicing Catholics who say that they don't know how to pray spontaneously out loud, that they know how to pray by road out loud, and they know how to pray liturgically, you know, in a, in a communi- community out loud but that they don't sort of know how to pray spontaneously out loud. And I I think we need that to have vibrant Christian lives. And if in some way coming together to talk and pray with, you know, with, with other parts of the communion of the church um, is a step towards that, I'm for it. I'm, I'm, I'm for it despite my ordinary cynicism and despite my expectation of all the things that it will be. I'm for the, the notion of sort of coming together to be rather than skeptical about this idea of, syn- of synodality, but to be sort of uh, open to it and the way in which not that not that synodality can change the doctrine of the church or something like that, but it doesn't uh, aspire to do that either. What it aspires to do is to help the church better know the will of God and the notion that that's something that all Catholics engage in together, rather than merely being sort of um, the will of God presumed to be sort of the um, communicated will of of the bishop absent sort of prayer and discernment in the context of the community strikes me as being not only an anemic pneumatology, but an anemic ecclesiology. I, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, I, I, too, would like to see all of the things that you mentioned more present in the life of the church. I recognize and accept your um, characterization of the various poverties of uh, the understanding and valuing of the reality of the Holy Spirit in the church in the last several decades. I, I don't disagree with any of that. My... The cause of my anxiety is the Holy Spirit only appears where space is made. It requires the assent of those that the Holy Spirit wishes to come and aid. And I I have not seen in the last three iterations of the the synod meetings of the Synod of Bishops on uh, in the last few years, I've not seen much which gives me hope to believe that rolling this program out globally throughout the universal church um, will be treated by all parties as an invitation to the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. I worry it's going to be treated as exactly what you say, which is, well, this is the moment we're going to inject some good old fashioned direct democracy into the church. And, you know, this is the time for everyone to get organized and make sure they give the right answers to the right questions at the right time so we can build consensus. And if we get the right numbers on our side and we organize properly, then, you know, the we can we can uh, have an emerging quote unquote consensus, which will then just be packaged up and said, well, you know, Vox Populi, Vox Dei, that you know the 
the the census fidelium is that we want x whether it is you know married clergy or you know a revisiting of the the idea of um the primacy of rome the hierarchical governance of the church or or, or whatever else it may be and those are all things which i think will be very much discussed in in much of this um so i remain anxious i you know what i love would I love uh, a globally organized moment where the entire church from the, you know, from every, every strata from the local parish up to the Vatican has a moment where they really, where there really is the prayer of come Holy Spirit? Yes, of course I would. Do I think that that would be of incalculable benefit to the church? Absolutely. But again, I, in some places I think it will proceed well. And I think there will be this, this spirit that you're saying, and I think it will be um, it will be beneficial in those places, but I, I don't see a church structurally conditioned at the moment. You know, you said that you know how many Catholics don't know how to pray spontaneously out loud. I I wonder if I, I wonder if the church is equipped to try and live a truly synodal moment at a universal scale. You know, it's not something that you know if you can't if, if you're saying and I I don't I don't have those statistics in front of me either, but I, I accept that they're. You know that you're. I've heard it before. A high percentage of Catholics say yeah. they don't know how to pray out loud. Fine. Practicing Catholics, but church in which that. a high percentage of Catholics are unequipped to pray spontaneously out loud does not strike me as a church which is at a current state of maturity sufficient maturity sufficient enough to to engage in a truly fruitful, universal synodal process. And I think that I I I get that I I definitely do. Um, I get that, and I think maybe that's where a lot of the anxiety or cynicism comes from. I think a lot of people are anxious or cynical about it in some ways because of that, because they expect that it will be at every level um, uh, people who are thinking about it. And I recognize not everyone, including all of our listeners, are sort of thinking about it. But but I think we all saw sort of the reactions when this was announced, and there was a lot of sort of cynicism and hand-wringing and stuff. And I think people expect that at every level it will be um, – sort of a buzzwordy or jargony kinds of uh, things in which um, in which sort of uh, the loudest voices are those which are calling for sort of changes to the church's actual doctrine or to the divinely instituted hierarchical constitution of the church or those kinds of things. I think there's a lot of sort of expectation that because of what you might call sort of um, endemic Christian immaturity that that might be the case. Well, and I worry uh, that that's the, those are the parts that will feed up best. And to be clear, I'm not saying that everywhere that's going to be the case. I don't think it is. I mean, before we ever had the idea of uh, a synod on synodality, there have been um, regions and provinces and dioceses in this country that were convening diocesan or provincial synods. Yeah. You know, St. Paul, Minneapolis, for example, and places like that that have really good grounded spiritual leadership. I would expect that they would produce good spiritual fruit that, you know, that seems like good... (laughs) You know, not to, you know, you said to reduce the Holy Spirit to a mathematical formula, but, you know, that that makes good ecclesiological math to me. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You can expect that outcome from from that starting point. Uh, I just worry that at the universal level, that's that's going to be a minority of experience. And, you know, I don't I I guess what I, I guess what I'm saying, J.D., is right now looking looking across the global ecclesiastical landscape. I don't see a church that is pulling together. I see a church that is pulling apart. Exactly. That's exactly right. I I totally agree with you. And And so this could be a thing which exacerbates that. It it could be. It it very well could be. But it doesn't have to be. And that's kind of the point that I, the the kind of the point that I want to make, and kind of the reason I want to bring it up all together is that it doesn't have to be. So first of all, I think part of the reason why I'm optimistic about the process or why I think the process has a lot of potential is because I think the stakes are extraordinarily low. Here's what I mean by that. Um, on the whole, in the history of the sort of modern synod of bishops, there have been very many synods of bishops on very many topics, and they have um, all, you know, kind of uh, been this process of consultation at the local level, and then bishops from the universal church coming together to talk about things and sometimes deliberate about things and sometimes debate assiduously things and the media framing them in the way that they have. And the media framing over the past few synods has been. I would say highly problematic because it often sort of frames the thing as legislatures which are deliberating policy rather than as bodies of prayerful Christians coming together to discern the will of God. And uh, and anyway, so there's all of this thing and all of this hoo-ha and there's tons of noise and the past few sentences have just been this, you know, tons of stuff and sideshows and side debates and, you know, YouTube guys paying guys to throw the thing into the river and the whole do- thing, you know. There's been all of this. Um, 
And at the end, by and large, what's produced is a document that contains some reflections on the Pope that, by and large and generally, is shelved. Um, generally and by and large, the consequences of all of that is um, a document that very few people read. Some people who sort of work in the context of the church because they're clerics or they work in the church and they're lay people and they work in the church or, or journalists read them. And, you know, there are sometimes sort of talks about, well, we need to have an implementation plan about this. And, you know, there's a diocesan committee that's formed and these kinds of things. But um, by and large, what post apostolic exhortations, which is the name of the document at the end, by and large, what it seems to me they contribute to the church most of the time, with some exceptions, is a set of jargon that gets sort of inserted into the ordinary pastoral work of the church. And sometimes a shift in mentality or a new awareness of things, but something which percolates and trickles out over a long period of time and the good fruits that come out of it, you know, you, you can't measure for years and years and years because you don't see how they've sort of shifted things um, o- over a long period of time, whether people have drawn anything from it or not. So the stakes are low. Sometimes they help the church to sort of think about things in a different way. Sometimes they don't. Um, but the process, even of bishops coming together for the synod of bishops, if it's not, if it doesn't become overly political, if it doesn't become sort of bishops thinking that they're the, you know, the, the guys who think like them are the good guys and the guys who think the other way are the bad guys, if it doesn't become partisan, um, or, uh, and sometimes that's exacerbated by the media in various ways, but if it doesn't become that, just the process of bishops from different parts of the world coming together um, and being able to exchange with each other and pray with one another, um, I think strengthens the communion of the church. And that the stakes are kind of low makes it in some ways, um, a good environment to strengthen the communion of the church, because maybe the process in a certain way, and maybe this sounds super sort of 70s, I don't know, but maybe the process in a certain way is the best fruit of the outcome. Like like the best outcome is just, maybe the best outcome is the friends we made along the way is what I'm saying. In in other words, maybe that um, synods involve people coming together to talk with one another and dine with one another and have coffee with one another, strengthen the human connections of communion in the church that um, become valuable in other ways, that build relationships that foster evangelical projects in the future or that help bishops to support one another in ministry in the future, these kinds of things. Like, th- that's important and necessary, and especially if it helps to break down sort of the partisan divide. So here's why I think it could be cool at the diocesan level, because it, it won't be cool if the people who participate—if people who listen to this show, um, you know, or—, or you know, it won't be cool if many, many people who practice the faith just say, well, that seems like an exercise in nothing. I'm not going to participate if I'm invited to participate by my pastor or something like that. It will be cool if people from different ecclesiological sort of camps um, come together at the diocesan level with a sort of legitimate openness to knowing one another, even if they disagree with each other about sort of what they'll put forward to the next level of synod and next level of synod. And at the end of the day, they may fight sort of vociferously about language. It should say this instead of that. And they'll fight and fight and fight. And then the next level, their report will be one of like 200 and around the world, one of like thousands. So, you know, whether it says this language or that language is hardly going to trickle up very far. Um, But the process of coming together and praying together and sort of seeing that Catholics who come from different ecclesiological camps, so to speak, or liturgical camps or cultural camps, um, can engage with one another strikes me as an extraordinary opportunity to strengthen just the unity of the diocese, uh, of any particular diocese. Maybe I'm naive about that, but I have some experiences that I'll mention. No, I I don't think you're naive about that. And again, I don't disagree with any of the possible benefits you're outlining. In fact, I, I agree with them wholeheartedly. Where I disagree with you is I do not believe the stakes are low. I, I don't believe that at all. I don't believe the stakes have been low in the last three synods. Um, I, I believe the stakes were, you know, and were were they a product of uh, political and media creation to say the church not only can, but must and will do things that the church has definitively declared herself not to be able to do? That that was a reality. Those were the stakes. Was you know there were there were people participating in an authentic and by authentic I mean sanctioned part of the church's um, ecclesiastical structure, calling for the church to break with itself, and that's that doesn't seem like low stakes to me. And here's I, why I think it is, because those people calling for that it, it matters for them, right? I mean, so sort of professing something which is contrary to Catholic doctrine matters. I think for your soul. Um, but wouldn't you agree that at the end of the synodal process, whether it takes two years and involves 
you know, some portion of the billion Catholics in the world or involves just bishops. Wouldn't you agree that at the end of the synodal process, the Pope's going to do what he's going to do? Oh, absolutely. And hasn't he proven that? I mean, hasn't he sort of done what he's going to do at the conclusion of each of the synods that have taken place in his papacy? Yes. So if that's the case, if the Pope's going to do what he's going to do, everything before that, you know, I think process is more important than outcome because at the end of the day, I think the Pope takes the outcome and he does what he's going to do. Maybe okay. it moves the, the overtime window, window, right? What, Maybe it moves the overtime window. Even Maybe it, leaving that, but again, when I say this is not necessarily, this can be a way to to bring the universal church closer together and in greater communities of, or it could be a chance to pull it further apart. You, you know, okay, the Pope does what he's going to do, and you tr- we all trust, hopefully as faithful Catholics, that the Pope is going to do the right thing and be guarded and guided by the Holy Spirit, for sure. But after the Pope did what he did at the Amazon Synod, the the church in Germany turned around and called him a coward. Sure, but that's and, on, that's and on has them, exacerbated right? their quote unquote synodal, not synodal at all, according to the Vatican process and path. Oh, so okay. And, so your concern is that these kinds of things set give people a set of expectations about what's possible that are beyond the realm of reality of what's possible or likely, and then when those expectations don't happen, they think the church should change this teaching or that teaching that there's momentum in it, it gives people a sense that that's going to happen, and then when it doesn't happen, it breeds dissension or frustration or that, whatever. And, and in the same way that if people come to a synodal process, and again, I think at many in many places, in the level of many dioceses, I think and hope that they, people will come together with a spirit of honest engagement and dialogue, even with people with whom they would reflexively consider themselves to be in disagreement. Uh, you know, I hope all that happens, but I think also in places and at different levels, it, it is going to make increasingly clear and even solidify divisions in the body of Christ, which is the church that we are going to see that the, the thinking of the institutional church in Germany is not the thinking of the church in other places. And that this is going to cause um, a further hardening of those divisions. And regardless of whose expectations are built up and whose expectations are frustrated or disappointed at the end of it, those divisions are not going to be healed by the fact of saying, well, we've had this lovely process you really wanted X to happen. It didn't happen. So now we can all go back to being in total agreement with the Holy Father who's taught the thing that the church has always taught, because that has not been the experience so far. Totally agree. I guess where I'm coming from, honestly, is that I like when divisions are on the table instead of under it. I I like when... I do too. I, I, I like when it's apparent who thinks what and who's saying what, and when it's apparent that there's even consensus in a particular area, even if it's even if the problem is only diagnosed and... and you know, won't, is not a problem that can be solved in any, you know, reasonable time horizon. I, I like clarity about the state of affairs. I, I do, too. I just don't think we particularly lack clarity on the state of affairs. I think we're <laughs> past that. I think we've had all too much clarity on that particular state so of affairs. so you think it will sort of trend, entrench it? I do. I, I worry it will trend, entrench or exacerbate it. But what I would like to see, and maybe this is the only answer, maybe this is the only option, maybe this is the only club in the bag for this. I don't know. I I I don't instinctively feel like this would be the only way of dealing with this. Maybe this is maybe the intention here is as an answer to that. Maybe this is conceived really as a way of addressing those deep divisions and hoping to heal them or mitigate them somewhat. Uh, again, for me, it seems like the opposite of what you said. This seems like a very high stakes gambit if that's the if that's the plan here. Um, and I could see it, you know, I could see it with the intervention of the Holy Spirit and the willing disposition of those involved. I could see it going very, very well and going very far in the direction that you're outlining. But I could also see if people come to it with a certain cynicism and um, a, a, an agenda, then I can see it going very much the other way. And I I don't think, what it, whatever your expectations or hopes are for the, the synod on synodality, I don't think that what we lack in the church right now is clarity on where the disagreements Agreed. are in the church. I, I totally what agree with that. What we need is a means of beginning to address those divisions and saying, okay, well, here are some legitimate differences of opinion we have, and we need to learn how to express our our common Catholicity around those differences in a way that is coherent and loving and fraternal and all that. That's great. But we also need to be able to find a way to say, well, look, here are some differences that are not between Catholics. These are differences between what the church teaches and what she teaches. She it is not okay. What the church says she is and what the church says she can never be. And those are not differences that we need further explanation of. I think we have that. What we need to do is figure out what we're going to do as a church that seems to have internalized an opposition to itself in many respects. And I, I, again, maybe, maybe this is the answer to it. Maybe I'm wrong. And, but again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying 
synod on synodality, terrible idea, don't have it. I'm just saying it makes me very anxious. I, I totally I, I totally get where you're coming from. See this, look, see how in dialogue we're coming to some understanding of one another? <laughs> I totally understand where you're coming from. And and let me be clear, I think at the universal level, by the time it gets to the bishops having their meeting in October 2023, there will be things which appear to be policy proposals, and they'll be crystallized, and it probably will act like a legislature. And I think all of the things at the level of the universal church that will crystallize these, and I think that that would have been the case even if only the bishops were going to meet to talk about this and there wasn't this two-year consensus process at every place. But I have hope that at the level of the of individual dioceses, which is where for me sort of the rubber meets the road to address these things, I hope that, I, I believe that it's possible for Catholics of different tribes to come together who would not darken each other's doors. Catholics making Jesuit jokes and Catholics making you know, Catholics making jokes about Jesuits and Catholics making jokes about homeschoolers who have too many kids might, like, you know, come together and have a cup of coffee with each other and wouldn't otherwise do that. And I think that at the local level, just knowing that the people—and and people don't, and you know by the way that you hear people from all kinds of camps talk about everyone in, in all the other camps, knowing that the people you disagree with are human beings who, you know, you made a joke with one time at the diocesan thing— is of extraordinary value, a value that I don't think can be underestimated. Um, so one of the, I think I've talked about it on the show before, but one of the sort of great ecclesiastical privileges of my life was to have served on something at the, at the USCCB called the National Advisory Council. So the USCCB has this thing called the National Advisory Council, and it is essentially um, a body of about 40 or so people, who um, bishops, priests, religious sisters and brothers. There might've been a deacon um, and lay people from every part of the country, some of whom work in the church, some of whom don't work in the church, some of whom are theologians, some of whom are canonists, some of whom are parish youth ministers, some of whom, you know, again, are chemists or whatever, um, accountants who come together and and come together twice a year. You're on it for, I think, a term of five years or something like that. Come together twice a year to kind of talk through the uh, uh, agenda of the U.S. Bishops Conference meeting and then to be consulted on various things by the bishops. And the stakes are pretty low. Um, the, the stakes are pretty low in that, you know, the, the National Advisory Council is asked about different things and it gives its opinion, but, um, and it gets to make a presentation at the meeting, but it's not as if it actually deliber you know, it's not as if it has any deliberative power. It has a consultative voice um, and a somewhat limited consultative voice because it's several days of discussion are distilled into a couple of paragraphs of summary. So it's a somewhat limited consultative voice. But the reason why it was an extraordinary sort of ecclesiastical privilege for me to be uh, on the National Advisory Council was because, again, um, I didn't agree with a lot of people on the National Advisory Council about a lot of things that pertain to the life of the church. And my sort of initial instinct there on the National Advisory Council was to sort of find the people who think like me and, you know, make sure that we work together to make sure that the things that we think should be said are the things that sort of carry the day when it's time for a vote and to make sure that the people who think like me are the people who get elected to be the chair of the thing or whatever, you know, to, my, my instinct, and I suspect a lot of people's instinct initially is to sort of um, uh, think about it politically or sociologically, you know, and, uh, you know, you can do that and that's fine. But what the real experience of it for me was just, again, like finding that at meals and drinks and morning prayer uh, and, you know, the occasional smoke break, uh, people with whom I didn't agree about, I didn't think I agreed about anything I, I had common ground with or had a similar sense of humor to or uh, a sort of similar set of concerns about things in the church, even if we didn't share solutions. And that experience broadened my perspective of what the church is dramatically without, I think, um, without, I, I think, I, I hope, causing me to sort of change my views on doctrinal issues or without causing me to change my views on issues that I think are, um, you know, matters of, uh, of faith and morals that must be held in a certain way. Um, but what we lack and um, sort of social media culture exacerbates it and YouTube celebrities exacerbate it and tribalism on all sides exacerbates it. What we lack is just something which was a great gift for me on the National Advisory Council, like the gift of actually having the experience of, you know, p- communion by proximity and engagement with Catholics with whom I don't agree. And it was a serious gift for me in the spiritual life. Um, and I think in my intellectual life too. And if that can happen at the level of dioceses in, in this country or in other parts of the world because of the thing, I'm super optimistic and bullish about that. Well, you make a compelling case. <laughs> I, I, I am, I am not no longer anxious, 
but no, yeah, I, I mean, it's going to be you, a mess. You have, you have successfully, sure. you have successfully given me some grounds for a small irrational hope that that will be the case. And I, I again, I, I want to believe, JD. <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> well, I think I, part of it is. Um, I think part of it is that that people who people from various uh, you know sort of church camps or, or cultures or whatever subcultures in the church who who would have the opportunity to participate in it, I think um, forget about what happens at, in Rome, right? I mean, we can't control what happens in Rome, and you know, we can't control what happens at the diocesan level either. But we can contribute to what happens at the diocesan level, and so if people from various sort of ecclesiological camps and cultures and subcultures and perspectives are willing to participate and participate with an open mind to engagement with other people instead of um, merely a mind to sort of make sure that their proposals carry the day. Uh, it could be great. I, I hope, I mean, I don't know. I don't think that he will. I don't think he has any reason to, but I don't know how the, even the selection of participants works at the diocesan level, but I hope my bishop invites me to participate because I'm, I'm making my, I'm staking my claim right now. I hope my bishop invites me to participate because I think it would be a great um opportunity for spiritual growth and for a new kind of ecclesial communion at the local level, which is the only, again, the only place where it matters. I, I hope that he does. I, I myself will not be waiting by my mailbox. I hope your bishop invites you too. And if I, he does, <laughs> I hope your bishop invites you too. And if he does... Okay, let's not, let's not be silly here. My diocese of bishop is not going to invite me to participate okay, in any... But, but maybe it'll be nominations by pastors. I mean, I don't know how it's going to work for people to participate. But if you uh, have some mechanism to participate as a participant, as a cat, I don't mean as a journalist, I mean as a human. Yes. I, I hope I'm invited to participate. And, it, and I hope you are too. And listeners, I hope you are too. And if you are, I, you know, I, I, I would just encourage the idea that um, having a conversation and a cup of coffee with the kind with the with the kinds of Catholics who you normally sort of m- might um, view only through the lens of sort of social media um, characters, you know, caricatures, and I say that to, as much to myself as to anyone that that there there may well be some fruit there. I hope I hope so. Cool. Again, and we you've... don't get that at the parish level because. Um, because, because people self-select large, for their parishes. People self-select for their parish, right? So I sort of know, okay, in my part of the city, what's kind of like the boomer folk mass parish and what's kind of like the young big Catholic family parish and what's kind of like the trad parish and what's kind of like the quasi-trad parish. You know, I mean, I, I sort of know that. And because people self-select in that way, I don't come across too many people in my sort of own parish who, um, with whom I sort of vehemently disagree or come from an entirely different Catholic culture or whatever because of the nature of contemporary American parishes. Yes, that that is definitely true. Yeah, cool. Well, I I join you in your hopes for a universal experience of dialogue and encounter. <laughs> Gosh. I realize when I say those words how they sound. I mean, I I, I get how I sound, I, but I, I, I no I, 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 no snark. I'm <laughs> straight up. Okay, you're right. Cool. Okay, well, uh, that has been interesting to talk about, and I think all of us will find out sort of what the process is going to be at various diocesan levels because bishops this month are sort of beginning to talk about it with one another um, as they prepare for um, opening masses that are supposed to take place sort of in in uh, late October and then the actual processes of coming together. And, and so the Holy See is going to send out questions and all of these things, and, um, and none of that has happened yet. Um, so, anywho, uh, Ed, in the news today, uh, no, not really in the news. Actually, yes, surprisingly in the news today, but also sort of on, on the Internet today, a great many Catholics have been paying attention to an Instagram post by an American pop singer uh, named Britney Spears. Are you familiar with uh, Miss Spears and her work? I, um, I, I know who Britney Spears is. Yes. Um, I mean, I have seen your CD collection. You, you know who Britney Spears is. I, I don't know what I'm more offended by. The insinuation that I have a collection of Britney Spears albums or that you think I have CDs. <laughs> Well, I don't know how much Britney Spears comes on vinyl, man. <laughs> I don't either. I haven't checked. Um, no, um, I I would anyway. not describe myself as a as a dedicated follower of Miss Spears, but nevertheless, I am familiar with her. Well, on on the internet today, and also I've seen in the news in a few places, um, is attention being paid to an Instagram post from Britney Spears, in which she says uh, says Britney that she um, went to she says I went to mass. I'm Catholic now. Let us pray. And uh, it's in the context of a longer Instagram post, and it's not clear whether Britney Spears actually converted to Catholicism or is making some reference or is interested in converting to Catholicism. I'm not sure on what the deal is there, but a lot of people are saying, oh, perhaps Britney Spears has converted to Catholicism, and thanks be to God for that. I have a question Um, at this point. Yes. 
it was my understanding amongst the few biographical facts of Britney Spears that I think I know. Isn't she from Louisiana? <laughs> y- yes, she's from Isn't Louis- there a presumption that she's already a baptized Catholic? Well, I think she's from northern Louisiana, which to my oh, mind... is that a different the thing? The Louisianans can correct me on this, but... I think Northern Louisiana is um, is a is a is a mostly a haven for evangelical American Christianity and not for the kind of uh, sort of cultural Catholicism that you would expect of Southern Louisiana. Okay, that's Thank my you. Carry own, on. That, that's my sense of things. And again, I say that as a Yankee who now lives out west. So what do I know? But I think that's the case. You've answered my question. Thank you. Please continue. Okay. So anyhow, there's this stuff that Britney, there's this sort of, it's in the air that Britney Spears has perhaps converted to Catholicism. And if that's true, thanks be to God. But, you know, um, it's always interesting when a celebrity converts to Catholicism. And, um, uh, you know, it's always sort of an interesting phenomenon for the church and often much discussed and these kinds of things. And uh, in light of that, Ed, we are going to play Name That Celebrity Catholic Convert. Dun, dun. I like it. Um, but before we move on from Miss Spears. Okay. I... I I have concerns about this. About what? Uh, about sort name of, that celebrity Catholic convert? No, no. Which, about the about the story of Britney Spears. Is she? Oh, is she she's not just a news hook, so we can play name that celebrity Catholic convert. I don't sure, know. Sure, but I know I, there's a I I I've seen it popping up and like basically I've seen people being um because I have a very very carefully uh it, I have very Curated. carefully arranged the settings on my Twitter account so that I mm-hmm. only. Um, see things from people that I uh, want to see, or generally speaking, don't regret seeing the things they post. I have seen little to little direct coverage of the Britney Spears thing, but I've seen a lot of people saying, "Hey, you know, you need to ask yourself if being a jerk about someone saying that they're becoming Catholic is really the best thing to do," which is depressing in itself. Which suggests that people are being jerks about it. It suggests that people are being jerks about it, and I don't really know how you would be a jerk about this. I don't understand what possible reason, but I mean, there is a it's always great when someone converts, for sure. No yeah. questions asked there. I I, I think um, it, it's also there is a danger, um, a risk that we can make too much of celebrity conversions. And I say this with a caveat: if we don't know exactly what's going on with well, I don't. I, I'm not. I don't think Britney Spears actually converted to Catholicism. Okay, she may be on the even, road to converting to Catholicism. Even if she's but, on the road to, and even if she does eventually convert to, Catholicism, I don't know. I, I'm but just she may have that, just meant it. I mean, I don't know. I, I, it, she may have meant no it playfully. I'm saying I, I'm making a yeah. larger point beyond just the Britney Spears thing. Of, um, okay, make your larger c- point. Ed, hit me. Celebrity religiosity is a one is, more time. Oh, that was that was well played, actually. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> it was um, a weird thing to say to you, but you know, it was, yeah. Uh, no, the point I was going to make is celebrity religiosity is something that people often cling to because the the, the perception, um, the not unreasonable perception among many Christians and certainly many Catholics is, is that we are cultural outsiders, that the dominant culture is one which is very much arrayed against not just the idea of the church, the idea of the faith, but also the values and the 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 beliefs. Not just in you know things divine, but in the the sort of humanistic values that underpin the church, the value of every human life, these sorts of things, and so there is, I, I think, um, an understandable knee jerk desire to sort of latch on to any kind of crossover of oh pop culture celebrity and the church. Hey, this is somehow you know validating of our of our existence, and I just. The, those things always make me slightly uncomfortable because what well, pop culture giveth, pop culture can taketh away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and I just, I yeah. don't know, I get uncomfortable. It's like when a couple of years ago when Kanye West put out that album about how he liked Chick-fil-A and everyone was like, oh my God, this is going to be the most spiritually transformative event in American history. And I was just like, ah, and it, you know, shock and surprise, it wasn't. Um, it, mm-hmm, it just mm-hmm. kind of, it strikes me the same way, which is just like, you know what? Yeah, and, and a lot what of you can are- say about the celebrity news cycle is, um, it's almost always a sugar high. Almost none of it is ever accurate, and absolutely none of it ever lasts. So to- totally, just agree. you know, if if people are going all in one way or another on is Britney Spears, does Britney Spears fancy becoming a Catholic? Just like, nah, just dial it back a little. One thing I really don't like that's related to this 
is um, the way in which the conversion, the conversion of a famous person can thrust that person. And again, I, we don't know anything about Britney Spears, but one thing that I really don't like is when the conversion of a th- famous person can thrust that person into an expectation of being a spokesperson for mm-hmm. the faith. You Some know kind I mean? of apologist with right, you know, exactly. Yeah, uh, sort of. Beca- they become sort of it becomes expected that they become sort of a Catholic voice of their generation or something like that. When really, you know, the most fair thing to someone who converts is like um, to give them time to. Um, which I suppose we call mystagogy, but to give them time to sort of settle into the faith and being a, being a Catholic and practicing the faith and experiencing the faith um, before sort of being expected to become like a spokesperson or representative for the for the faith. Absolutely, so, I mean, I, well, and the 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 Blessed Code of Canon Law has all sorts of provisions mm-hmm. in it for right. neophytes, yeah. people who are who are new Catholics, newly baptized, or newly received into communion with the Church, and things that. Obviously, they can do and, you know, have all of the... Yeah, but there's you know, a reason you can't join a religious institute five minutes after you've converted to the Catholic. Exactly, because you yeah. need, you know, you need time to settle into the faith. You right. need time to, you know, to to grow in in intimacy with the relationship with God through the church, that this is this is a good thing. And I mean, yeah, and it's, and it's not just sort of, you know, real, you know, 24-carat celebrities like Britney Spears, but it's just like, you know, you see the people who like... Someone who's got 15,000 Twitter followers says, I'm becoming Catholic. And he's like, well, now tell us what you think about abortion. Tell us what you think about the death penalty. So it's like, it is not the job of someone who has just begun the process of entering the church to they have to be, to have uh, to be on call to present a coherent apologetics for the church's teaching. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the church has within its own uh, governing and societal structures, you know, provisions to prevent that from happening out of care for everyone. And so, yeah, when I see people sort of kicking off about this, and so I did always just makes me go kind of, uh, I mean, you know, well, don't get me wrong. If it's true that Britney Spears is on the road to Catholicism, then I, you know, I'm praying for her, but yeah, part of what I'm praying more for power, is that she's able to, to praying for great, discern that and great. experience that in, in freedom. There's a related thing that I'm always, that I always sort of, that I, that I, <laughs> that happens a related phenomenon that drives me nuts actually. And it's this, um, um, is it people yeah. making lyrical puns on the back of news stories? Is that the thing that happens? The tragedy? <laughs> no. no. Um, uh, you know what I should have said? I said I should have said. There's a related thing that drives me crazy. Uh, you know that Britney Spears song. Um, anyway, I do there's actually. A, yes, I do know that song. There's. I know because you have the CD. Um, <laughs> I don't have a CD player. This is outrageous. I, I'm, I I think I was in your car, and I think you do. Anyway. There's a related thing that um, drive me crazy, and uh, it's it's uh, it's something that happens when a a, a major or minor celebrity um, or public figure decides to enter seminary or enter religious life, and um, they are not usually by the religious institute, but sort of like they are held up by Catholic media or something. They're sort of held up as like, uh, hey, this person is you know given up this big life to follow the Lord's call. And um, the danger of that, the reason why it drives me nuts is because I feel like people who enter a, a religious novitiate or the first years of seminary should be able to do so essentially in secret um, or it, it, very quietly so that they have the freedom to to um, stay or leave according to their discernment of God's will and the church's discernment of God's will rather than according to some perceived or imagined pressure even in their own mind about sort of what people expect or that they gave these quotes before they entered saying, you know, I, I'm absolutely certain this is God's will for my life, you know, or, or whatever. Like it just, um, I don't like anything that impinges on people's freedom to discern. Um, hundred percent uh, agree. I also yeah. feel this way about couples who get engaged. You don't think they should tell anyone? No, it's not that I don't think they should tell anyone. I mean, secret engagements could be fun, I guess, but I, no, I mean that there is, um, the postulation towards a thing in the church is often treated as as the thing itself as the thing itself that you know we're engaged oh well then you know clearly this is the person you must marry and you know god has chosen and da 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 in the same way that you know guys discern out of seminary all the time men and women discern out of religious orders in the in you know through the novitiate all the time also i think this is this is important for couples to do when they're engaged to I discern kind of out of engagements in freedom i mean i kind of agree with that except i think I, that um what is to disagree with well, I'll tell you if you let me. Um, I think that... <laughs> you drive me crazy. 
<laughs> I kind of agree with that, except it seems to me that when you get engaged to someone, you have made a promise to marry them. You have not made a promise to discern marriage to them. And so um, while I don't think it's a sin to break an engagement or morally wrong to break an engagement or something like that, I think one should continue to discern. I think one should not get engaged in order to discern marrying the person, but because one has discerned to marry the person. Recognizing that that can change before one makes a lifelong commitment, one, it seems to me, is essentially in temporary vows at that point and um i'm making yeah, what an to temporary vows religious. you can go or you can stay and i think that's true you know you can go or you can stay at your wedding you know up to up to the time when you make up um, when you make the promises of marriage um however i don't think that we should sort of ordinarily think of being engaged as the discernment period so much as the preparation period it, it i would agree but i'm just saying the discernment period ne- needs to continue up until the point where yeah you sure married. you should break an engagement if you want if you think you should break an engagement absolutely and you shouldn't feel in any way morally compelled to marry someone or otherwise compelled to marry someone or compelled to marry someone because all the arrangements have been made and people have spent money on the thing if, if you don't want to marry a really lovely sh- engagement party yeah, and exactly. there's pictures all over twitter and yeah you know, if you i'm just saying someone, the, the, you shouldn't marry someone period well I, but this is exactly the, the, this is why i made the point in response to your right. thing about celebrities in, entering seminary or religious life or whatever and you know there being this sort of you know well, are you you know, All I'm saying you, is I think when someone says, will you marry me? And I say, yes. In a certain, I say, yes. when a person says, will you marry me? And, and, and the, the beloved says, yes. In a certain way, the, the, the person should be saying yes and should be asking the question because they have discerned insofar as they're able to that point that that's what they want to do with their life. I, I would agree with that. But in the same way that, um, you know, that yeah. it, it is something that often comes up in, in marriage preparation classes to say that, you know, marriage is, it requires an act of the will every day. Yeah. Uh, so does being engaged. You know, when you're asked if, will you marry me? And you say, yes, presumably you mean it in that moment. But it's a question that you have to keep asking yourself yeah, sure, throughout totally. the engagement period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. I agree. If you don't want to, if you're engaged to someone and you don't want to get married to them, you shouldn't get married to them. I totally and completely think that's true. Okay. I'm glad I've won you over to my controversial opinion. Yeah, and I to mine. I, I'm glad you're looking forward to the synod on synodality. <laughs> Are you ready to play Name That Celebrity Convert? Please. All right, Ed. Let's start with an easy one. Name That Celebrity Convert. Dun, dun, dun. Ed, this American actor, known for his roles in war films and westerns, converted to the Catholic Church shortly before his death. Uh, who is John Wayne? Ding, 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 ding. Well done. Very proud of you. Thank you. Okay. Are you ready for name that celebrity convert number two? Sure. Ed, this American novelist, short story writer, journalist, and sportsman, deep sea fisherman extraordinaire, and beard grower of all beard growers, converted to Catholicism in 1927. He stopped practicing the faith in 1940 after one of his many divorces. But he did receive a Catholic graveside, a Catholic burial, because his family requested it. Perhaps I should have said that to you in short declarative sentences. Uh, Ernest Hemingway? Ding, 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 ding. Interesting. Well done. Yeah. Hemingway converted for his second wife, or converted because his second wife was Catholic, but then after they got divorced, he stopped practicing the faith. He did stop practicing the faith. I, mm-hmm. No, I, I... Huh. Okay. Cool. Okay. Ed, you're English. Despite that home loan thing, <sighs> this former prime minister of the United Kingdom converted on December 22nd, 2007, after stepping down as prime minister. Tony Blair. Ding, 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 ding. Ed, you're I, English. I, I'm, uh, yeah, let's move on from that one. You're English, so this one should be just as easy for you. Ed, name that celebrity Catholic convert. Ed, this man, the oldest son of Sir George Fletcher... And his first wife, Alice Hare, uh, succeeded his father as a baronet in 1700, was educated at the Queen's College of Oxford, where he matriculated on 10 June 1678, entered the House of Commons as a member of Parliament for, this is the name of the district, Cockermouth in 1689, representing the constituency until the following year. He converted to Roman Catholicism and then lived as a monk in the English monastery of Douai in France until he died there and was buried in a chapel. He had built for the community at his own expense. With his death, his baronetcy became extinct. I'm really embarrassed to say I don't know. You don't? Ed, this is you, this was the easy one that I made for you for Name That Celebrity Catholic Convert. It's Sir Henry Fletcher, the third baronet of Hooten the Forest. I, he, is, he is new material to me. Well, feel free to... 
work that into conversation when you're talking to your English friends or what have you. <laughs> okay, Ed. Um, this celebrity Catholic convert attended Catholic school on Chicago's South Side and uh, decided to become a priest even before he converted to Catholicism. He was baptized and received his first communion in 1959. Stop. And was... I would like to guess early, please. I'm buzzing in early. Go ahead. Who is Cardinal Wilton Gregory? Wilton Cardinal Gregory, indeed, Ed, your own archbishop, celebrity Catholic convert number, whatever that was, and you are doing pretty well. But you you do have one wrong, so you're not going to get a perfect score, but let's see if you can stay above 500. Okay. Right now you have one, two, three, four right, one wrong, so you're batting whatever that is, 800. Let's see if you can stay above 500. Ed, let's go from one bishop to another. An Anglican bishop whose principal ministry was Bishop of the Church of England, but after his retirement as the Bishop of London, became a Roman Catholic, becoming the most senior Anglican cleric to become a Catholic since the English Reformation. He was conditionally ordained to the priesthood uh, by, uh, and later appointed a Monsignor by Pope St. John Paul II. You probably remember his funeral, because I think you were working in politics at the time of his funeral, and this sounds like a guy who politicians would notice. Mm. I don't. Oh, I'm embarrassed. I don't know. His Excellency Graham Douglas Leonard, a Knight of the Royal Victorian Order. Wow. I. I thought these English ones were going to be easy peasy for you. Uh, sorry. Okay, Ed. Well, down to six hundred. I'm sorry to you. Down to seven something. I don't know. I'm not doing the math here, but down a little bit. Okay, this round of name this celebrity Catholic convert is going to be a little bit different because I'm going to tell you the guy's name. But what your job is going to do is to be um, to name his most famous creation. Okay. Uh, all right. Robert L. May, Chicago man, was the creator of blank. Born in 1905, died in 1976. He was twice widowed, grew up with no religious practice. His second wife, Virginia, Virginia May presumably, was a devout Catholic who died April 7th, 1971. The next year, 1972, Robert May fulfilled one of her wishes by converting to Catholicism. And then, on July 25th, 1972, he married Virginia's sister, Claire, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. On August 11th, 1976, he died, was buried at St. Joseph's Cemetery in River Grove, Illinois, having created one of the most beloved Christmas characters of all time. Who did Robert L. May, Celebrity Catholic Convert, create? Beloved Christmas characters? Um, okay, hang on. Uh, what year did he die in? 1976. Probably had a lot of sideburns, be my guess. Okay, it's going to be Frosty or Rudolph, so it's a coin toss. I'm going to say... Rudolph? Ding, 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 no ding, kidding. ding, Well done. The creator of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is a convert to Catholicism, Robert Louis May. I'll take uh, it. Uh, what's that? I said I'll take it. Yep. Uh, Rudolph first appeared in a 1939 booklet written by Robert L. May and published, published by Montgomery Ward, the department store. May was essentially uh, hired by, uh, by, by Montgomery Ward uh, to create a coloring book with a new reindeer creation. Uh, the child was the the coloring book was so popular. Montgomery Ward distributed 2.4 million copies of Rudolph's story, as written by May. The story was song? written as a poem in anapestic tetrameter, the same meter as a visit from Saint Nicholas, um, and uh, and uh, from there it was uh, history. Did he write the song? I don't know. I think okay. so because I think the song is the poem. Is the poem okay? Yeah. Wow. All right. Oh wait, no. May's brother-in-law Johnny Marks adapted the story of Rudolph into a song. Gene Autry's recording of the song hit number one on the Billboard Pop Singles chart this week, the week of Christmas, nineteen forty-nine. Audrey's recording sold two point five million copies the first year, which is about the same number as the Coloring Book, if I remember correctly. Eventually, selling a total of twenty-five million copies. I think you have the CD, and it remained the second best-selling record of all time until the nineteen eighties. Wow. Now, you're wondering, of course, about the stop-motion animation in 1964, which is, of course, the most well-known and most beloved version of the Rudolph story. Um, the producers of the show only had the song as source material. They didn't have a copy of the original book. They, they hadn't... I mean, this was a department store coloring book. No one knew it was going to be so popular, and so they didn't sort of retain archivally copies of the book. 
And uh, so they sort of interpolated an original story based around the central narrative of the song. But I don't know what um, what Robert L. May's sort of original song was because it was adapted or story was because it was adapted by his brother for the song. And then the song was adapted even more for the stop motion. That's that's a lot of information to take in. Um, but thank you. Robert L. May, celebrity Catholic convert. Okay. Regarded as one of the greatest coaches in college football history. His Robert biography. May? No, no, no. We're on to the next celebrity Catholic convert, my friend. This man, regarded as one of the greatest coaches in college football history, uh, he is uh, identified as football's most renowned coach because he helped to popularize the forward pass and made this team, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, a major factor in college football. He married a Catholic girl in 1914, and uh, it was not for 11 more years that he converted from his native Lutheranism to the Roman Catholic faith, which he did on November 20th, 1925. He was baptized in the Log Chapel on Notre Dame's campus. I've only been to Notre Dame like one time. I don't know what that is. But anyway, Ed, name that celebrity Catholic convert. I'm just going to assume it's Newt Rockney. Hey, oh, you are killing it, buddy. The only ones you've gotten wrong are the English ones. It's really weird. I'm... I'm sad that I knew the Notre Dame one. <laughs> okay. This is a sad one, but then it's less sad. I want to clarify. I'm sad that I knew the Notre Dame one because I couldn't go to Notre Dame. You didn't get in? I, let, let's just say my high school career was not of the kind that generally makes one uh, fodder for acceptance at, the, at Our Lady's University. Well, it's not too late. You could uh, go for a graduate degree or something now. Uh, I'm sure you I could get into like a seminar or a conference. Maybe, but you know, I kind of feel like the ship sailed. I'm just, yeah, look, I'm still it. trying to make my peace with it. That's all. I get it. That's all I'm I saying. It. it never occurred to me to go to Notre Dame, but that's another story. Yeah, but this. Well, sorry. Anyway, you know what? <laughs> Let's just say it occurred to me. <laughs> okay, this Civil War general was born into a Presbyterian. Oh, it's a family tradition for you, isn't it? A bit, yes. Yeah, okay. This Civil War general was born into a Presbyterian family, but he was raised in a Catholic household by foster parents after his father died attend, um, and eventually became a Catholic. He attended the Catholic Church until the outbreak of the Civil War, which, this is very sad, destroyed his faith. Sherman? Just Yep. His, I was just about to say his faith went up into flames. Uh, but um, his wife and children were Catholic, and even though the war destroyed his faith, which is very sad, uh, one of his sons, Thomas Ewing Sherman, became a Jesuit priest. I, I knew that, actually. Yeah. Well, you, you know go. how I knew all that? Tell me. Oh, I mean, the only way anyone knows anything about the Civil War, Ken Burns' documentary. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Obviously. I, I have I have lined Everything up Everything I know show. about Prohibition and the Civil War, Ken Burns taught me. And I'm okay have, with that. I have lined up on my shelf to read the Ron Cherno, um Grant biography, which mm. I really want to read. Actually, I'm reading a different Ron Chernow biography right now, his Washington biography, which is super interesting, um, and one of... Pulitzer and it's like 900 pages and I think I'm about I'm, I'm in there I mean we're getting we're in time to the revolution um, but uh, um, next I hope to read Grant hmm. so let me know how it goes I will okay Ed, your last one and uh, you're English so you might not get this one because it has to do with an American game called baseball but this baseball player and his wife first became interested in the Catholic faith after the birth of their first child a friendship with a Catholic priest later helped lead this man and his wife's conversion in 1959. He was known to frequently read the Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis' famous devotional book, of course, which he kept in his locker. If you need additional clues, I will tell them to you. Um, he is the godfather, I believe, of uh, the steroid guy, and uh, he is known as the Hammer. His 755 career home runs broke the long-standing MLB record set by Babe Ruth and stood for 33 years. Dude. <laughs> You're not going to answer. I don't know. I, my guess was going to be Babe Ruth. I, I have to admit, Catholics in baseball is not something I have... His 755 career home runs broke the Bo Babe Ruth's record and stood for 33 Hank years. Hank Aaron? Hank Aaron! Okay. Well done. <laughs> Well okay. done, Ed. You got through. Name that celebrity Catholic convert, and I'm proud of you. I thank you. That was that was surprisingly challenging in places. Well, the English ones, but and the baseball one, but you know, I, I know, hey, no, I got it. I got it. I was <laughs> I made the mistake of focusing on the Catholic trivia and not just focusing on the home runs. Fair enough. Well, well done, and well done, listeners, for bearing with us in name that celebrity Catholic convert. You have been listening to the Pillar Podcast, a Pillar Media production. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, the great knowledge of Catholic celebrity champion of 2021, Ed Condon. See everybody next week. 